Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. In this episode, we're interviewing Tyler Jeffcote. Now, Tyler, like many of our guests, actually got into business at quite a young age. And we sort of explore this really interesting concept of of going into business with a different business partner where you bring different kind of assets to the table, but also where you're at different stages of your life and your entrepreneurial journey. So Jeff was quite young when he got into his first business and he partnered up with somebody who was older, who, you know, Tyler brought the, the energy and the passion and some ideas and, and the business partner brought the capital and, and the experience. And look, really, really interesting how these kind of relationships evolve. It's also really, really interesting to see where they end up, particularly if you're not having those really deep and sometimes difficult conversations up front about where you want to take the business, what your expectations are about growth and ultimately exiting. So now their story is one of success. I mean, they grew the business from zero to 105 employees and managed to get an exceptional offer on the table. But that little sort of, uh, I guess, difference in perspective meant that that offer was not accepted. And ultimately, the, the relationship between the two business owners didn't really, I guess, go where they had hoped it would. So look, in the end, uh, Tyler still exited. He still exited and did well out of all of it. But he talks really candidly about how he would do things differently if he had his time again. You know, the other part about this episode is that we go on to discuss what Tyler's doing these days and the frenetic amount of activity in the M&A world at the moment. Um, in fact, Tyler even touched on the fact that he's been across about $100 million, uh, in in e-commerce deals uh, over the past sort of 12 months and how that's just flowing through now, you know, being towards the end of 2021 and going into 2022. So, you know, if, if anybody is thinking about selling their business, you know, one of the key messages is that you, you probably haven't seen a better time in history to be actually taking your business to market uh, or certainly looking at the steps you need to take to be able to capture that uh, should you want to sell one day. So there's a whole bunch of other things we're going to unpack in this episode. You know, if you ever want to sell your business, there's a lot of things here that you need to consider. So I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this episode. I know I certainly did. This is Tyler Jeffcoat. Hey, Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. Good to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you making the time. I'm super excited to hear your story, but also just to talk about what's going on in the world. I mean, you're... you're 
across a lot of stuff in M&A and, uh, and as are we, of course, and just, uh, just knowing some of the areas you play in, it's, it's pretty exciting. So, um, so thanks for making the time. Absolutely. You're welcome. Buddy, I know we're going to talk about your business care to continue and, and then we'll get on to um, you know, what, what you're doing today. But maybe, maybe just for a bit of context for, for the listeners, maybe you could kick off and just give us a little of your background and, and kind of what led to you, know, you starting care to continue and we'll pick it up from there. <laughs> no, sure. Yeah. So I, I was an accountant by trade. So I guess the end of the story is circling back to that. But you know, ended up working for a gigantic bank as a middle manager in I don't think as a college student, I would have identified myself as an entrepreneur. I just wanted to, but I didn't want to take orders. And, and I, when I felt like my work wasn't, <laughs> wasn't meaningful, I didn't feel like I was um, making a difference. Um, had a, an investor approach me and say, hey, we got a, a problem. I wonder if we can solve it together uh, related to providing care for seniors. And so I ended up kind of stumbling backwards into the kind of healthcare staffing, think, um, you know, nurses, CNAs, uh, medical assistants. And, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, Simon, but, but in the States, there's this gigantic explosion of baby boomers that are needing care. And, Definitely. and, there, and there's in the insurance world, the, the health insurance world is bad in the States. It's not good. It's bad. We're great at fixing things that break, break a hip. We'll fix it. If you need a way to prevent getting into the hospital, we stink at it, right? And so I had a couple of grandparents that had a really nasty experience in a nursing home. And it just frustrated the hell out of me. I was like, I wonder if there's got to be some better way. And so that was the genesis of, of my business partner and I starting Care to Continue. We literally did a, this kind of fabulous uh, uh, over-the-top focus group experience with, a, with about 35 seniors. They named the company. It was their idea. So we kind of built our story out of how to really meet their needs better. And man, it was a hard first year. And then it was like a hard second year because we went from uh, first year, nobody cared, right? No one cared about our business. The second year we went from five employees to 55 in like 11 months. And it was was insane. It was insane. That is a whole bunch of different problems there. (laughs) Oh, I know. And like, you know, you laugh about it because we didn't make a lot of money, by the way. Like, you know, that kind of growth was a really difficult thing to manage. And, and, And so we kind of over three or four years, zero to 100 employees. And then I ended up exiting the business. And I think that's the part we'll talk about here in a little bit, Simon. But, you know, we had some investors give us some really cool numbers from evaluation. And then my partner and I butted heads. And what ultimately ended up happening was not the not the dreamy exit that I had hoped for. It was less. It was great. It was base hit double, you know, that kind of thing. Not a slam dunk, not a home run. And, uh, you know, started the business I'm in now uh, called Seller Accountant, where we're helping. Now I'm trying to help the entrepreneurs in the e-commerce space avoid some of the mistakes I made. And uh, we're seeing lots of cool stuff happen in the space in terms of exits for those guys. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Uh, Well, you know, and so much to unpack here, but but healthcare, absolutely right. I mean, we've got the wave coming, so the the fundamentals of a business like that are pretty obvious. I think you know more and more. There's all these studies about how people don't want to go to some kind of sterile place to go and retire or live there. And you know, people want to be at home. They want to have you know, they want to be treated like a human. And there's all this sort of stuff going on around the lack of infrastructure facilities anyway. So yeah, we we are seeing the absolute same boom on that space. So that makes a lot of sense. But you know, rolling forward, you know, you're saying about the first and second year and not making much money. Look, I get that too. Like, you know, I've, I, I don't know what number, I'm on my fourth business or something like that. So, I, and, and I swear, I think I live by this idea that, you know, generally, and I think you might have some e-com examples that blow this out of the water, but, you know, typically I've said year one, 
You pay for the business. Year two, the business pays for itself, and then year three, the business starts to pay you. Totally. And uh, and I, you know, yeah. So, and, and was that was that kind of similar there for for uh, Care to Continue? Yeah, and I would even say that that same that same one two three was the same for Care to Continue, and the same for the second startup seller accountant. Where year not only does not only did I pay for year one, but it was lonely, it was terrible, it was scary. <laughs> you know, you're, you're dialing for dollars, and you're like, just I'll shine your shoes, I'll do your laundry, just give me money to do something <laughs> for you, right? You know, yeah, yeah. and like you said. Year two, you're uh, you've solved the first problem, which is do people care enough to pay me to solve something for them? But then yep. you got to build an operation around that, and so that's a real um, that's a booger because then it's like, oh wow, we need to have a hiring policy, or oh wow, we got to actually um, figure out like we don't pay people consistently. Is there a salary range in our company? That kind of stuff, and then you know you skin your knees enough on that, and then like you said, uh, year three, you're like, oh. I don't have to feel guilty taking a little money out of this business. We're not going to crash it uh, tomorrow. <laughs> it's funny to your point about the e-commerce businesses. We saw a guy that you're going to love this. He put 70 K into a business 18 months later is negotiating a $30 million exit oh. with a private equity firm that has a billion in assets. Just unbelievable. Oh man. Good on him. Good on him. You know, I have another, I, we had a client who sold in the middle of COVID too. And, and he started his business in the first year. He took home 750 K and I'm like, <laughs> You know, and he, and he, and I swear, like he's, I, I, I didn't ask him his age, but I honestly thought he, he had to be just shy of thirty. You know, I thought he was still in his late twenties, and I'm thinking, man, you've, you've done very well. You know, I'll, I'll put aside my own uh, sense of inadequacy here that I, you know, <laughs> I took three years to make some money, but anyway, he wanted to sell it. We talked to him about it and said, um, look, you need some more time. You've been in the, you've been in it one year. Like people are just going to be very skeptical about whether this is repeatable. Um, and he talked to me about his forecast and he's growing and da 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 da. And I said, okay, cool, go and do that next year, and then let's talk again, right? And so we helped him a little bit along the way, but the next year he took home one point five, and we went, okay, I think you're ready. <laughs> So, um, and we did sell it and he got a good price and, you know, happy days. But um, yeah, look, I, th- I think I think the world is changing. That deal, by the way, went across in, in the middle of COVID. It, it, from the day we started the campaign, we closed it out, settled in 67 days. And, uh, you know, which was a record for us. But, uh, and I keep telling people, that's not the norm. Don't expect that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Hey, um, take me back to uh, care to continue for a second. I'm, I'm curious um, because I, 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 I want to cover that off before we get into the e-com stuff a bit more because I, I want to spend some time on that stuff. I love it. Care to continue? Like you mentioned that you kind of maybe didn't end the way you wanted to, but in the beginning, did you guys talk about your end game? Did you talk about exiting, you know, all that sort of stuff? I think we, so. We had lots of conversations, and they were um, actually. I've listened to a couple of your a couple of your episodes. I'm not the first guy on your on your podcast that had like an older <laughs> partner, right? I was the I was the 29 year old finishing grad school, didn't have two nickels, and was the only operating partner. And, and Dave was. Uh, I'm incre- I'm incredibly grateful that he would throw money at a 29 year old and say, "Hey, go build something." So I think the the big yeah. picture is just incredible amounts of gratitude. But and so it wasn't just a handshake. We had a sheet of paper, but it assumed. The most rosy, like like to the extent, I'll give you an example. The initial contract that he had me sign paid me such an incredible percentage of our revenue as a bonus because he didn't understand how to build a company that I was actually the one two years in that said, hey, buddy, I'm bankrupting us both in the next six months if you don't renegotiate this and just give me a slightly larger piece of the company. I want this thing to grow. And so we, And so during the course of that transition was where... Uh, you know, we had his attorney in the room and I think as 
30 year old Tyler thought that I had an agent in the room and I just didn't. And so then, you know, just like talking about taking some lessons from it, but we ended up saddling our balance sheet with, with a bunch of debt that was kind of to make him whole on the investment that he had made plus a whole bunch. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a short way of, of saying I, I paid dearly for not being, um, for kind of being a coward and not dealing with that conflict in 2014, right? I mean, again, in 2014 was the year we went from five bodies to 50. Uh, yeah. We're bringing in a lot of revenue. And I think in my head, I thought, you know what? Whatever issues we have, we'll scale out of that trouble. We're going to get to a point here where we're going to be making so much money. We're not going to know what to do with it. I, I'm not greedy by nature. We're going to be fine. And, and what ended yeah. up happening is that it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, we finally get to 100 and whatever, five employees. Uh, we're never a huge uh, company in terms of revenue, but, you know, a little less than 240, 260,000 a month in revenue, like that, that kind of thing. Cool. And it just didn't get better. And so, and so what ended yeah. up happening is I, I was introduced to an investor that really understood our space at scale. He had run the, the $100 million version of what we were doing. And it was kind of perfect. This guy had money. His son wanted to get into something. And so he made us what I thought was an incredibly generous offer, you know, given the fact that we were big, but we weren't crazy profitable. We were sloppy in our ops, you know, three to $5 million valuation, bring him in, yep. make my partner whole. He, he was never active in the business, make him really whole, make him really happy. Yeah, yeah. And then I would have the active equity in, a, in, a, in an operating partner to move forward. And, you know, in hindsight, I, I could see how he would, I could see how he would perceive me coming to the table with like, Hey, I've got this really cool idea is him being like, you're trying to cut me out of this, this baby that I helped you build. And, you know, I, I don't know, it, it wasn't intentional, but in hindsight, I was probably a little bit, uh, a little bit aggressive on that, on that side of it. Right. And, and so sure, it just kind of sure. eroded, um, some trust, I think from his standpoint, where next thing I know, um, I'm having to let go of a key employee. Again, we got 105 employees. I'm, this, I'm a CEO of a company that's got a lot going on. And I, I got to let someone go that is, that, is a, that is his oldest friend that's in our company. And so oh, now man. he's thinking yep. this is the one person in this company that could probably take over if Tyler decides to bail. Ain't happening. Not going to do it. And so I was the 25% owner. He was 75%. And, you know, kind of the rest was history in terms of, you know, I did sell it to him. It was a happy ending. I made a little bit of money. It wasn't anywhere near the $3 million valuation we had had to begin with. And I did a hundred days CEO transition to a new team, which by the way, was the most, now I've heard of some of my clients have these long earnouts and it can be really awful. My hundred days of being like relegated to kind of being like a high paid bookkeeper sitting on the sidelines and kind of seeing this culture. I mean, these people I cared about so much, just kind of eroding so quickly. Uh, and it was just gut wrenching. I, I um, I was depressed. It sucked. It was really terrible. And so I was so thankful to see the end. Made a little money. Grateful. I mean, I'm so grateful. Yeah. Put a check in the bank uh, and then a bunch of small checks over the next three years, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then started something else. So that was kind of, that's the summary. I don't, you dig anywhere you want to. Yeah. That's kind of what happened, man. Yeah, no, 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 thank you. And just appreciate your open and honesty here. It's, it's you know, it's one of those hard things we. I think it takes a sense of emotional intelligence to be able to look back on our, ourselves and go, oh, yeah, okay, I actually probably could have changed that or done better here or I just plain screwed something up. And yes. I, I'm actually really good at it because I'm constantly pointing out to my wife, okay, I, I screwed up again. All right, I, I'm just going to own it. <laughs> yeah, well, at this point, the wife, my wife just makes the face and I'm like, all right, I know I screwed I can't put my finger on what I've done yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm not the smartest one out of the two of us, so it'll take me time to work this out. And th- yeah. Thankfully, she's patient. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so... Um, one of the things, I'm, I've actually got a few clients at the moment even that uh, I'm talking to, they're, they're going through different things, mergers and stuff like that, and, and, and I'm, I'm hammering the point almost to the point of like kind of pissing them off almost where I'm saying, listen, you, you, you can't always map out and say, oh, in five years I'm going to exit at this valuation with this timing and this structure. and Like, you, you know, we can point in the direction of where we want to go, but getting to the nitty-gritty, I, we can't work that out. But you do need to have some mechanisms in place so that you and your business partners, if for some reason one of you wants to get out or two of the three of you want to get out or whatever, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that mechanism. And and if somebody did walk in the door and made an offer, like if it's over a certain threshold, can we all just agree that that's a sale, you know, or <laughs> so it's a, I guess from your experience, you probably have a different approach on, you know, going into business with people and maybe you'd <laughs> a different a different way of going about it. Yeah, no, and I have partners now, by the way. Like, I have two business. Now, I'm the dominant partner of this company. And that, you know, it may be a while before I'm, I'm able to not be the dominant partner in a company. Um, but, but I'm a yeah. big believer in partnerships. I'm a big believer in finding, you know, talented people. But you, you mentioned some great things there. Like, you can, you can think you've done the work of kind of putting together a simple or even fairly robust operating agreement. But unless you have a clean kind of buy, sell, kind of parachute kind of clause in there. Because I think that's the thing. Listen, I mean, we're, we're laughing about our wives, but like my intention is to be married for the rest of my life. You know, if I can, if I can pull that off. But, but a business partnership is generally got a life cycle. And for most of us, that life cycle isn't like decades. It may be a decade. It may be some number of years. And so I think before you get into it too deep, this is what, first of all, this is what I wish I had done. This is maybe advice to myself is, have that conversation about what if somebody makes me an offer? What if one of us goes off the rails? What if, um, what if one of us goes through a big family thing? I mean, just, you know, because I think the rosy optimism that I brought into it as again, tw- I didn't know it was, I was 29. I was like, you're going to give me money. This is great. You know? And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think, I think my, the wisdom now for future ventures is, Hey, we need to have some possible awkward conversations and we got to have yeah. them now. And if we can't have them now, and the other thing is kind of a big aspect of it is how healthy are your partners? That was what I really wish that I thought a bit more about. And this is not even to say that Dave wasn't healthy, but he had so much going on in his life that he yep. needed this little fledgling business to perform, even though he was going to be passive. I don't know if that makes sense, but he wasn't so strong that he could let the thing kind of grow enough to really generate income. He needed it within a year, within a year and a half to generate income. And it really puts some stress on the business that I hadn't forecasted. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's it's all these sort of different dynamics that can just take people down paths they didn't even know existed, let alone you know didn't think they'd find themselves on it. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think I, I think you know I, hindsight's such a wonderful teacher, but. Hey, we all go into things. The one thing that's uncertain is that there'll be uncertainty. So uh, you know, it's have, having those awkward conversations. I think is upfront is is a very very good tip for anyone listening. And and by the way, a, a, a problem you're having at a one million turnover. You know, I love your point about you thought you'd scale out of it, but generally a problem at one mil turnover is a much bigger problem at 10 mil turnover. Um, and even people who you didn't think were greedy at one point can become very money focused yeah. when the number is now substantial. So, yeah, yeah I just, I think start with the end in, end in mind, right? It, uh, it's, it's one of those things and having those awkward conversations is a very, very good idea. 
Mate, tell me a little bit about the um, when the, when this party came along and offered money. Did they? I mean, you mentioned before, and I won't squeeze you too hard on numbers and stuff here because I'm sure some of it's confidential. But you just you mentioned that it wasn't hugely profitable, but three to five mil. I mean, that sounds like by a traditional metric, you know, multiple of EBITDA or something. It was probably a very a very good offer. So I think, yeah, no, it was, and I am trying to remember the details because there was like the deal that didn't happen. But yeah, it was. I thought it was really generous. I, mean, I think in the in that that particular part of healthcare, we're not we're not we're not SaaS. It's not a software company. But I think there was a yeah. there was kind of a three to seven x EBITDA multiple was kind of the standard in the industry. And the offer yep. we got was very close to the top end. I, I think they the, the investor was recognizing how dominant we had become in our region. So we were. So for those of you who don't know the states where the Georgia is in the southeast, Atlanta is the big city, and we were dominating the northeast side of Georgia that wasn't in Atlanta. And so we really had strong reach, and we needed cash to open multiple offices where we could really grow quickly. And so we, I thought we were getting um, kind of top of the market. Uh, you know, I was expecting five and got like seven and a half, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Still, that is a great offer. And it's, I'm, I'm just always sort of curious, um, one, about how do people come up with their numbers, right? So right. asking you about, about the formula is always really, really cool. But also really interested too in, in how this stuff comes about. I mean, you know, I get a lot of clients come to me because they go, oh, look, I've been through this process. Someone tapped me on the shoulder and then I went down this long-winded path and nine months later they said, no, they're not interested anymore. So I'm always curious about where the buyer comes from. And so it sounds to me like, did, 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 that, did they approach you? Did you just know them? Was it an older relationship? How, how did it come about? You know, I actually was at a kind of a trade show, a conference for our industry and just you know, my, my grad school focus was kind of in finance. I just gravitated to some of the, the banker guys there just to talk to them. And I wanted to know what was happening in the space. And I also had in the back of my mind for us to do the $80 million version of this company, I'm going to need some help, a lot of help. And so that's how I met the gentleman. And he uh, was interested right away. And I'm, we met, met for lunch a few times in person and just spent some time together. And, and again, uncovered that he kind of had this dual position of being an executive in a private equity fund, having experience in my industry and having a son that he kind of wanted to set up as a partner, maybe a minority partner in a firm. And so it was a really interesting strategic fit that, that we thought were, yeah. maybe it was coming together. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And clearly, yeah, you, you, so you, you feel the, the juice there, you know, it's, there's a, it's worth spending time on, right? So it's, um, no, that's cool. It's, um, did you have any moments through that where you thought, Geez, if this is going to happen, should I be going and talking to other people, or did the deal just feel so right that did you know you didn't feel the need? I you know it's a really good question because I think in hindsight for sure. I let me just say this: the deal I did it the wrong way in general. I had a seventy five percent majority investor that was the main owner of my business, and so I thought that this was a really non threatening thing to do because I thought, hey, we're going to be able to really generate lots of value for both of us here. What I should have done is I should have had the hard conversation three years ago, kind of put, put some grievances on the table, let him do the same thing and then say, Hey buddy, what may help us here is to work together, package this thing and try to put, bring investors in and then shop this investor along with 10 others. Right? I mean, there's, there's a right way to do it. We maybe should have had a broker involved, that kind of thing. For me, it was, that wasn't really on my mind. All I knew was we're growing a, you know, a hundred thousand miles an hour. I need help. I'm, you know, I was definitely in the Let's work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I mean, this is a 24-7, 365 business. And yeah. this kind of popped into my lap. And I'm like, well, 
I don't have anything else on my lap. This is cool. And so yeah. for what it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for for my complete lack of diligence or even wisdom on that side, it was actually a fairly interesting relationship, but it was yeah. not handled the way I would advise my clients to handle it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's 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 go take that step. You know, it's a good segue. Talk to me a little bit about what you're doing these days. So when I when I left Care to Continue, took my wife and two daughters camping for three days. And then the next Monday, got a laptop and a cell phone and started in another industry that I have no business working in, which is now I am an <laughs> accountant. I'm not a very good accountant. I'm, I'm more of a kind of finance MBA boy. Right. But I just thought this this e-commerce space, Amazon in particular, is just fascinating. And so we started a company called Seller Accountant. Uh, we sell a really non-sexy service called bookkeeping. Right. You got to have it. <laughs> and our, our, our kind of shtick is. Um, let's help get you investor grade financials so that you can try to go to market and build your brand and exit when you're ready. And so it's become this really cool business. I love it. It's where there's these, I kind of feel like we're representing the David, these little guys that are competing with, with Bezos and the guys at Amazon or the Walmart guys. And they're, you know, some of the same kind of clients, Simon, that you would work with where these guys are doing it the right way. They're maybe one to 20, one to $30 million businesses. And if they can just get a few things in place, they can really have a life-changing exit. And so that's what we do. And so uh, you and I were talking about it a little while ago. It's like there is a supernova happening right now in e-commerce with, yeah. uh, with a ton, just in the States, like $10 billion in private equity, which is small relative to all private equity. But for Amazon businesses, it's huge. It has flooded the space. Values are up. Multiples are up. And it's really been kind of an interesting moment. Yeah, and 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 just to sort of tag on to that, um, you know, yes, in the e-com space, but for the, anybody who hasn't, you know, for anyone who's been living under a rock over the last couple of months, M and A just generally, not just e-com, globally, it is, it is. And in fact, I heard somebody the other day in the press tout this as the best time in history, in terms of M and A. There is. The interest rates are phenomenally low. Stock markets are phenomenally high. Properties are phenomenally inflated. People are looking for alternative investments, and that's going into businesses because it's the last area that they can get a decent return. And there is so much money flowing around. So, you know, more deals, bigger values of deals, greater multiples are happening. And this is just broadly across so many sectors. So, for those who have been wondering when is a good time to sell your business, Get your head out of your own business and your own backyard for a little bit and look up because it's not necessarily about the ships in the ocean. It's actually the the, the wave that's coming that, that controls most of the outcomes. And, you know, really, um, if you listen to most of the pundits, over the next 12 months, you probably won't find a better time in the next entire business cycle. So ponder on that a little bit while I explore this more with Tyler. But, um, mate, you said to me, um, you know, as we were jumping on the call, you, you've seen, and, and I hope I'm not saying anything too much here, but that you've seen about $100 million bucks worth of uh, worth of deals flow recently, which is cool. Can you talk to me a little bit about what e-com transactions look like and just, you know, the general flow for those out there who who don't live in this space? Sure. Yeah. And we're, we're hoping by the end of the year, it'll be about 130 million. So there's a couple of other ones of our clients. And so, but yeah, so what's, what's happening is traditionally an e-commerce brand. So we don't have a lot of, other than inventory, there's no physical assets. We have uh, generated a product. Sometimes we have some intellectual property. Sometimes we don't. We're developing a Chinese supply chain. We're going to market via our website, maybe Shopify or Amazon, Walmart, that kind of thing. And so with this kind of supernova of, of private equity flooding the space, what used to be maybe a two to three X multiple, and that was if you had a pretty strong brand. Yep. Has now that's of EBITDA, a- just to 
Yes, sorry, sorry to interrupt sorry, you, but sorry. that's two to three X yeah. of, of that they're calling it seller discretionary earnings, but kind of an adjusted EBITDA for sellers. And yes. it's become now a four to five, five point five, right? So you think that's a that's a yeah. doubling of the enterprise value. And these private equity firms are raising cash at 32x multiple. Yeah. And they're like, what what seven? I gotta pay seven? What's the big deal there? And so the challenge, wow. this is what's interesting. The challenge that some of these equity funds are running into now, and I've consulted with about 10 of them in the last year, is they didn't, they underestimated the amount of working capital that was going to be needed to continue running these operations with some of the supply chain slowdowns that we've seen. And so they're still paying these high multiples, but the bill's coming due with their investors a little bit where they're wanting to see some return on investment and it's going to take a few more months than expected. And so in my side of the pond here, at least, that we're seeing a little bit of a temporary dip in the transaction volume here, kind of, I would say, July through kind of October. And I think as soon as Q4 hits, which is, uh, so again, if you happen to be in the e-commerce space, getting through a big Q4 here, and then maybe looking to go to market Q1, I think is could be just fabulous timing because another... Even in the states, just in the states, and their ten billion in private equity is just feverishly looking to get into the space. They've got to. They 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 imagine this: somebody strokes you a hundred million dollar check, and you have no choice but to deploy that capital within six months. And you have a very narrow investment thesis that says, "I have to buy a business that looks like this, this, and this." That's kind of yes. what's happening right now with our with our clients. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. It's it's interesting, and it's, and it's funny too because you, we talk about the timing in the market and all the rest of it. It's you know the waves here. I hear people saying, "Oh, yes, this will be pushing all through next year and everything else." People are always trying to pick the turn of the market. It's like, man, you're never going to be able to pick that. Like you know, and and the problem is, you'll only know it's turned when it's too late. Yep. So you know, if you once again, I think if for people who are thinking about. Um, should I be, you know, I want to sell or I want to sell at some point, um, you actually may get a better valuation today than you do in 12 months' time. So, you know, it's it's don't hang around to start thinking about or talking about these things because it takes time as well. So well, I think I'd like to get your thoughts on this also, Simon, but I think it's so important. I'm increasingly convinced that it's important to kind of know what your number is because I yeah. think the because we can't, we can't time the market. We don't know like this. Theoretically, we'd love to sell our business at like, 89% up the curve and the other guy gets a yes. little bit of good for two years. And then somehow we've somehow captured all of the value and it really doesn't work yeah. like that. And so if you got a number, if I know I need to make 5 million, if I know I need to make 10 million yeah. to get out, then it gives me a lot of power. And the other reason that's powerful is a lot of these equity firms will play games with the offers. They'll be like, Hey, guess what? I'll give you an eight X multiple, but yeah. You got to throw in $2 million in inventory and you're going to have an earnout yeah. over five years and this and that and the other. And so, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing it more than I am, but like knowing your number and understanding that you can't spend a multiple, you can spend yeah. cash. Like, is that what you're kind of seeing? Oh, look, absolutely. And 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 I'll go next. We, we actually did a webinar on this sort of stuff recently um, talking about how to come up with your number, right? And And I think too often I see with business owners, there's a bit of a thumb to the wind and they go, oh, I think I need 5 million. And when I say, I say, why 5 million? And they go, oh, well, that's just my number. No, no, how did you come up with it? And that's kind of where it ends. It's sort of like, well, I sort of did a bit of a back of the mental envelope and sort of went, meh, 5 million, I'll pay off the house. I've got a bit left over, blah, blah, blah. That's my number. I'd encourage people to 
you know, this is your financial future, right? Like this is a this is a pretty important thing to to spend some time on, and and there are some really great processes you can go through to think about your life and where you're going and what's coming up for you and um, and how to put a little bit of science behind that number. And, and of course, combine it with a little bit of business valuation science, I won't say magic, um, <laughs> you know, to, to understand valuations and how they work so that you can kind of try to triangulate, right? Where am I? What do I kind of need it to be? Where is my business? What do I need to be doing? And, and you know, you can start to then get a bit of a, a runway and say, well, you know what, with the right support and planning and whatever, maybe I can be at that number in a couple of years. And, and I think, Tyler, coming full circle back to what you're talking about, somebody walks in after 12 months and offers you that number, well, then it can be a pretty unemotional decision, right? Hey, yeah, we're in the Goldilocks zone. Let's do this. Let's do it, baby. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I 100% agree with everything you just said there, Simon. And then the other, only other thing I would add to it is like there's a little bit of self-discovery. Like, And this is just my personal story. Like, I think I was convinced when we were growing so quickly in our first company that my definition of success for myself was to be the CEO of a $100 million company with 500 employees and this, that, and the other. And I think what I learned through the journey was Meh, that's maybe not me. That actually is maybe not how I'm wired. I actually might be a little bit more of a, I need to cash out at five or 10 million and I need yeah. to go build something else. And maybe my life will be better served and I'll be more energized hitting a, a bunch of doubles instead of trying to hit a grand slam. And so yeah, know thyself yeah. as part of that scientific process uh, it can really go a long way. Oh, big time, big time. And, and and recognizing that knowing thyself, you know, your perceptions and your ideas and what's important to you do change, right? You know, yeah. uh, I got married and I realized my opinion was worth less. <laughs> so, you know, and that was a good thing, you know. So, yes. you know, it, it, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I've, I've always laughed because I'm not the, you know, I'm not the kind of guy I need a Ferrari or this sort of stuff, you know, or I need to have the massive luxury boat. I, I'd be happy just to go on the boat every now and again, right? Or, you know, and, and here's Tim Ferriss coming through with the four-hour work week. But, you know, you don't need to be a squillionaire to have a really, really amazing life. Right. And, uh, and defining how you want to spend your time and stuff like that is going to be probably a far more valuable exercise, as a human and as a business owner than pipe dreaming or blue skying about these things that you think you want. So couldn't agree with <laughs> Tyler, what do you see with transactions around e-com? Uh, my experience has been, and, and I think partly this is because of the, you know, the storm, M&A storm we're in at the moment. Partly, you know, the COVID was a, I saw a, COVID drove a big shift in thinking around business models. Um, you know, some people, particularly private equity, have had, Parts of their portfolio smashed. Um, there's big rethinks going on about how they solve those problems. But also, hey, if we're going to reinvest, we should be investing in different areas now, right, that are maybe more resilient or whatever. And, of course, we all know ecom has been a massive beneficiary of that. So I, I'm prefacing what I'm saying with this, this explanation because I've seen some transactions. We've led some ecom transactions that have moved really quickly and done some cool things. But there is a big part of me that sort of goes, well, is that the norm? And so I'm curious to get your perspective around what a typical e-com transaction looks like, but also just your view on, do you think we're in a bit of a period where it's out of the norm or do you think those kind of trends will continue? I think what's out of the normal right now is the amount of new money in the space that hasn't matured operationally. So, so, so. So the things that are here to stay are, are uh, you kind of alluded to this, Simon, but grandma wasn't going on Amazon.com or Amazon.au to buy their her stuff. 
the pandemic forced her to start adopting that behavior. And so what was 30% year over year growth in e-commerce was like 60% and is it going to be. So we kind of got a five-year bump into the future. That's not going yep. anywhere. The trend will continue. There'll be other disruptive players in there. Uh, I think, but I think what has really made it interesting from a financial standpoint, like you said, is those guys that were invested, there's a retailer in America called Kohl's or JCPenney that just got crushed last year. Let's take that cash out. We got to put it somewhere. Let's go into e-commerce because now we're, we finally opened our eyes to the fact that this isn't a waste of our time. We want to get into it, right? Yeah. But, yep. but having smart capital, and I put that in quotes here, doesn't always equal smart capital. And so almost every one of these firms that I have had the privilege of helping, the first few deals that they try to diligence, they're just like, oh, we've got to win. We've got to win. We've got to win. Now, this is great if you're trying to sell your business, by the way, because these guys are looking for kind of cornerstone deals that'll help get them off the blocks. And they're willing to pay gigantic uh, multiples, including maybe even some like if you get a chance to roll equity with a firm that might go public in three years, that's how quickly these things are cycling. You may have a chance yeah. to really kill it. And we actually had a client um, that not only made 20 to $30 million in the first year of this exit, but was able to roll 6 million of that into this firm that I, Simon, I don't even know. I, I couldn't even calculate the actual final value these guys are going to get because it's going to be huge. And so I yeah. think what we're seeing, and this is what's interesting in the States here, is a number of these funds are already realizing, oh, crap, I don't know how to run this business. And so some of the big guys are starting to gobble up the little guys. And so, again, how does this apply to the normal business out there? I, I agree with your premise earlier that this is a really good time to potentially sell a business if you've got something that's really screaming along. And especially if you have a high risk profile, you know, you're, this is your only source of income. You're not, you don't have a lot of cash in the bank. Now may be a good time to take some chips off the table and use the reality. And you're not, you're not taking advantage of these guys. These guys are all like Harvard MBAs that have lots of money. <laughs> if they yeah. want to give it to you to exit, take their money yeah. And, yeah. and disappear yeah. and go build something else. Right. <laughs> Totally, totally. It's uh, it's funny, and I say the same thing to the other side. I, I've seen vendors who think that they can wave a magic wand over problems and they can just sell it to other people. And I keep saying to them, "Hey, those people are equally smart. Don't think you'll fool them either, right?" So I agree with you. If they if they're smart guys wanting to offer you a lot of money, I oh, take it. I'd take it. <laughs> you can always start something new. <laughs> well, and also to your point there, this is what we saw this summer because we kind of had an anti-COVID bump. I don't know if some of your businesses have seen this, but we had some companies that really were were un uh, were, were disproportionately helped by the co coronavirus pandemic here in America. Yes, maybe they were like at home fitness equipment or something like that that just boom took off, and yep. then they went to market with a trailing twelve months of May. They're getting the gigantic offers, huge offers, and the ninety or sixty days of diligence happened to coincide with a couple of months where they just went back to normal, just kind of tanked yes. back down. And so one of these fairly large deals, um, you know, fell through 65 days into diligence. And so the cautionary uh, tale for me, yeah. I was like, huh, and this is, this is what I kind of heard you saying a minute ago, Simon is if I've got systemic issues in my business, I'm not really going to be able to put, put lipstick on that pig and get it on a market. Yeah. I may want to slow down in, first of all, I always want to be the one to bring that issue to my buyer instead of letting them discover it. Because um, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. also, uh, my company does due diligence for some of these funds, like some financial quality of earnings. And I can't tell you how many times we dig in there and we're like, oh, here's another 100K in advertising expenses. 
oh, oops, we just omitted that from the financials. And that kills the deal, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, man, I totally hear you. It's, it's you know, I, I almost feel like a broken record saying this, but, you know, getting deals done is actually not an easy thing to do. It's it's not like selling a home where somebody walks in and says, oh, but I just love the kitchen and the local schools are so fabulous. Let's just give them an extra 50K. Like, it doesn't happen. And there's so many complexities. And so, you know, you want a deal done? Well, you need willing buyer, willing seller who need to build an enormous amount of trust in a very short period of time and as to your point, Tyler, little things like that, like actually some things might have been a genuine mistake, but that mistake, that issue gets blown up in the minds of the buyer because they will think it was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And they start wondering what else is he hiding? Totally. What else is in there yeah. that we're going to really not know until we get on the other side of this thing and we're going to be stuck with the bag. And so yeah. if you're looking for the opportunity to maybe have leverage to not have as much of an earnout and, and try to get more cash up front, just be transparent, be crazy. In fact, I almost encourage my clients to be like, you know, that month, like last June, let me tell you about the three mistakes I made in June and how I really wish I'd yes. done it better. I want to be like proactive in bringing those issues out because again, you can do the opposite. You can actually build trust in a, in yes. a way that they're like, well, maybe I should pay an extra half multiple for these guys. I mean, they're really good guys and they're not going to lie to us. This is great. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, I mean, but we were saying before buyers, they're, they're going to be generally, generally pretty smart people with pretty smart advisors. So they don't expect your business to be perfect. So the fact that you raise the issues with them and you can actually demonstrate that you've thought about it, perhaps you've learned something in hindsight and you've got ideas on how to mitigate those risks going forward. That's a big plus. <laughs> yes, yes. Big plus. So, yeah. Uh, Tyler, I can see we're brothers from another mother, and I don't just mean because we're both follically challenged here, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <Really good. laughs> hey, uh, I'm curious. T- talk to me about a typical kind of e-com transaction. Like, what does that look like from a time frame? You know, how much you go about sort of typically finding buyers? Are you leading those transactions or are you just mostly sticking to the DD part of it? What does all that no, look it's like? A good, so I, we are not an intermediary at this point. We're not, we're not a broker. So what we're doing is our role is that somebody comes in and we're cleaning up 24 months of financials so they can get through due diligence. And then we're normally, you know, partnering with a couple of investment banker groups or, or intermediaries to help them get to the deal. Uh, and then in terms of the typical transaction, E-commerce tends to look like this. There's going to be, let's just say the, the multiples four times EBITDA or, or, or adjusted earnings. And then you're going to be looking at normally the standard is maybe a 4X EBITDA plus a peg for working capital. Meaning if I had $500,000 already tied up in inventory, the, the, yep. the buyer will compensate me at closing for that inventory. Yep. Um, the thing that's really changed is uh, when you traditionally had to get the SBA, the, the Small Business Administration here in America involved, um, the, the closing time was really long. If you could get it done in 90 days, you were really, really happy oh, because wow. the yeah. private equity guys are really geared towards pulling the trigger quickly. We're seeing a lot more deals kind of happen in 45 to 65 days, which is pretty quick. It's intense. It's an intense. That 45 days, 90 to 90 days, is that from the beginning of the campaign or is that the DD period or? What? No, that's probably at this point, if you've got your packet ready. So again, there may be three or four weeks of preparing your packet. But yeah. going to market, fielding offers, uh, you know, it's funny, a year ago, there was such a feeding frenzy. You might get an LOI within five business days and you might yeah. be, you know, doing 30 to 60 days of diligence, depending on the buyer and you might be done. Yeah. I think I'm seeing that lengthen a little bit. And actually what I'm seeing, Simon, is that these 
private equity guys, like they are smart and they're figuring out how to diligence the different nuances of the business model. For instance, yeah. am I more of an arbitrage play versus a brand owner? Do I own the IP? Am I more multi, multi-channel or omni-channel or am I really focused on one? And so uh, when I asked them, and I would ask every single one of these funds, I, talk, I literally talked to probably 30 of them last year. I asked them the same question. What is your strategy? And like probably 20 out of 30 didn't have one. They're like, uh, I mean, it, they wouldn't say it like this. They could sell it, but their real strategy was to spend this money as quickly as possible and we'll figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. now they've matured a little bit because they've gotten burned on a few deals and they're realizing, okay, we like the ones that look like this. You know, for our industry, if it's a smaller number of SKUs that are really profitable, high moving, that's better than a thousand different products that are kind of low moving uh, because the network yeah. capital is lower if you've got a smaller portfolio. And so yep. most of those deals, let's say, just to finish my comment, if, if it's a 4X, you normally get about 3X at closing. And then either a stabilization payment or some form of earnout, um, but I do think that that's been a trend that's been in the in the seller's favor. Where maybe two years ago it was more fifty percent of deal value up front, fifty percent over the next two years. Now it is closer to seventy five percent on day one. I think there's just a lot of a lot of leverage that the seller has right now, and the buyers are eager to get the deal done. And so I would not, if I were selling right now, I would not be happy having to take fifty fifty. And now at least not if I'm in e commerce. Like there may be other industries where you got to do what you got to do. But if I'm in e-commerce, I want at least 70% on day one and I want their earnouts to be really clear. So I know how to earn. Yeah. It. Yeah. No, that's, that's really, really great advice. And, and I think, you know, for anybody listening to this, who's thinking about selling their business, I mean, if you don't want an earnout, and hey, I get that, right? No one actually wants an earnout. Um, then you fundamentally earnouts are there and put in place by buyers to mitigate perceived risks on their behalf, right? So if you want to avoid the earnout, mitigate the risk. So you know, if, and if you're not selling today or in the next year, you know, if you've got time to work on your business, there's lots and lots of things you can do to mitigate that risk. And clearly, a big one of those is get yourself out of the business, and then they don't need you to hang around and do stuff. So, um, so yeah, there's plenty, plenty of things, and and that's a discussion for another day. So, yeah, Tyler, I'm I'm so fascinated, as I say, in this space, and I just I just love talking about this evolution of e-com. Um, are, are you seeing, because, you know, e-com's really broad. Are you seeing any kind of trends in the styles of e-com businesses and what they offer? There have there have been a couple of like, I feel like there's been iterations, kind of the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Five yep. years ago, you could throw, it wasn't that the joke, you could throw any garlic press in the world on Amazon and have a million dollar business, <laughs> right? There was no need to advertise, no reason to differentiate. You didn't even have to have your instructions in a language that was readable. And I yeah. think the market matured in about 2017, where having a differentiated product with an advertising strategy was crucial. All the other guys died. And now we're kind of seeing maybe version 3.0, where you really need to invest in your brand. You really need to do the work to part of that mitigating the risk discussion you're talking about, Simon, is do I have some assets that are, and I mean brand assets. If I I was talking to a guy the other day, it's surprisingly easy to get a design patent in America if you do some work to just tweak the design. And that gives you some, some real power to kick the bad guys off your listings if you're on a marketplace or um, to have something on your own website that is more attractive. And, and so I, I think here's my prognostication. My forecasting is that marketplace is going to continue to be king for the majority of products that are kind of 
commoditizable. In other words, I'm not trying to hate on your baby if this is your product, but unless it's highly differentiated and in a lifestyle kind of category, you're going to tend to get a better return on your ad spend partnering with an Amazon, eBay, Walmart. But the most profitable and highest multiple brands over the next four years are going to be the ones that have successfully crossed the chasm to have a true direct-to-consumer model where they are selling to the customer through their website. They own that customer's email address and have now figured out how to retarget that customer. Because when you go to your investor now in three years, you can say, hey, listen, yeah, we got a million. We turn over a million a year on Amazon. We turn over 2 million a year on our website. But here's the even better part is whenever we launch a new product, I've got 250,000 email addresses that I can send a campaign out to direct that traffic to wherever I want to. Amazon, where do you want it? I'm going to send it there for you. And so just know that there is the ability to build additional asset value, but you can't be lazy. And it takes a lot of work to build that brand equity in those relationships. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's I, I don't want to say anymore. That's brilliant advice. I just let that hang out there for a little bit. But, uh, that's really cool. Tyler, clearly I could speak to you about this stuff all day. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing down here now. So I'm going to have to drop in on you when I'm, uh, when I'm back in the States next time. There but you uh, <laughs> man, are you happy for people to reach out to you? Because I, I imagine with what you do, it's not, it's not sort of US centric. I mean, helping people get their books in order and get prepared for DD is something that's universal, right? Definitely. And especially, you know, you're going to have to have a tax compliance guy in your country. Stick with him. You don't want you don't want my team. But if you're looking to address investors or exit in in the states, which is where a lot of private equity is centralized, you know, it may it may be worth looking us up. And so, yeah, sellerraccountant.com. You can find anything you want to know about us there on the website. Yeah, awesome. Are, are you happy for people to reach out on LinkedIn? Sure, find me on LinkedIn too. That's great. Yeah, Ty, cool. So we'll Jeff Coat with one F. It's the weirdest name in the world. But if you Jeff Coat <laughs> with one F, there's like three of us on the planet. I'm the bald guy that's 38. You're not hard to find me. <laughs> it's always the handsome ones, mate. Don't worry. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. uh, we'll, we'll put links to your profiles, your websites. We'll put it all in the show notes for anyone who'd like to reach out to, uh, to Tyler. Um, and please, as we always say on this show, if you reach out via LinkedIn, don't just send a connection request. Please add a little note. Maybe let him know that you heard him being interviewed on this podcast. And then it doesn't sound so weird. Um, <laughs> Tyler, thank you so much. I'm going to have to come back to you and talk to you about coming on the show again because there's so much stuff here that we could keep talking about. But, man, I really appreciate your time. I'm really grateful for you sharing your story and just being so open with us. So thank you very much. Simon, my pleasure, brother. Thanks for having me. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com 
forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.